Professor Cornish, this is our third interview for the Eminent Scholars Archive, and I hope that today we can discuss your published work, concentrating on your books, which were published over nearly 45 years during the period 1968 to 2013. They cover an impressive range of topics, the jury system, intellectual property, and the development of various legal topics during the 18th to the 20th centuries. So could we start with your first book that was published in 1968, The Jury, by Penguin Press. I wonder if you can tell us how you devised and executed this project and what originally motivated you. It arose out of uh, the work that was being planned by a group of teachers at the London School of Economics, all of whom were masters of their particular crafts. Um, and they had been drawn together by Charles Clark of Penguins, the legal editor at the time, a uh, young man full of inspiration. Mm. And so books like Orion Diamond on the Consumer uh, Law and Society, Where to Learn on the Worker and the Law, and many others followed in this process of trying to establish a socially realistic view of how the law operated as distinct from learning its principles in a relatively abstract way. So you got no feel of the range of society who would get involved in particular parts of the law. Um, the jury suggested itself to me because I was teaching the English legal system, sort of task that junior lecturers get. And, uh, it seemed particularly enticing because, of course, it is a secret system. Judges instruct jurors in, in our jurisdiction without being present during their um, discussions and reaching of verdicts, and nobody knows much, much about what happens. And I thought I could conduct at least some preliminary inquiries nonetheless. Um, in order to make a start on opening up the jury system. Perhaps it was a, um, a rather strange thing to do in the jury trial was becoming progressively more focused on serious criminal offences only. It had practically lost all role, for instance, in accident law, even though juries did set the level of damages when um, a liability was found. So I set about various ways of trying to meet people who dealt with juries, judges, of course, counsel. And I was able to get the names of some who had served as jurors in, in London and arranged to interview them. And very interesting it was. Of course, the impression you get from people who are prepared to give you an interview is one that they were deeply involved in it, and they certainly were. That's why they wanted to talk about it. They weren't people who it had been an awful bother in their lives to have to come to Stoke Newington Court or wherever it was, instead of going on with their one-man business very often, though some exemptions were available in the system because of that sort of factor. And so out of these various uh, talkings about what either participants themselves as jurors or other people in court came to know from experience uh, about jurors. I was able to build up something of a, 
a working picture. As some of the critics pointed out, I really had no uh, objective across the board knowledge. Thousands of people were serving each year as jurors and how to get a bit closer to a social picture of them was under the rules then and now very difficult. It wasn't actually illegal to interview jurors at that stage, though that was introduced into the law in 1980 when more people got interested in talking to them. Right. So the clap, no, the blinds came down. All the statute. I think I recall one of the reviewers, uh, somebody by the name of Cameron, who himself has written on this topic, saying that uh, it was difficult because, uh, like the Chicago work, uh, there was not much hard basic information. Um, do you think this has altered in the no, intervening I 50 I years? I don't think it's seriously altered at all. Um, different issues, of course, have come up. The social construction of juries changes as more and more people uh, are drawn into the system. And in 1970, women were admitted uh, for the first time into jury trial. Extraordinary last-ditch stand. Um, and there was a certain amount of concern about whether people of less intelligence, working people, um, should be serving on jurors because they might find the subject matter difficult simply to comprehend or their task difficult to, to comprehend. So these streams were certainly there, but you couldn't say they were dominant factors which the great minds of the legal system discussed constantly with a view to change, not at all. Judges had many reasons for wanting the jury to stay in securing public acceptance for what went on, particularly in criminal law proceedings. Professor Cornish, this brings us to your second book we're going to look at today, which is Law and Society in England, 1750 yes. to 1950. And uh, this was originally a collaboration with Geoffrey Clark, who was also at the LSE. And I wondered uh, what motivated you to, to join him in this very complex well, exercise. We were driving to a meeting of what was then called the Society for Public Teachers of Law, which was taking place in Manchester, the annual meeting. So we had plenty of time to talk to each other. He was trained first as a historian, uh, but was teaching in the law faculty by then of University College London. He'd been a solicitor in the interim and a left-wing firm of solicitors, very well known, Thompson's. Um, in uh, the temple. Uh, and he was naturally interested in historians' approaches to something as wide-ranging but non-specific non as the law, so surrounding us all, all the time, though we don't notice it for much of the time. And we thought there was certainly a room for a book which attempted in one volume to give students in particular, law students, some grasp of the history of the system they were studying before they went on to anything else like comparative law or international law or jurisprudence. Um, 
and many of them came to law studies without any real sense of recent British history. They'd done other subjects at A-level and uh, the whole idea that history might in essence be something different from legal study didn't impinge on them. They went ahead and they got the law in and they passed their professional exams on the basis of that and then there they were trained. Well, we didn't think legal education should just be about training for a profession. It should have a critical outside perspective on it. And so, of course, we, I knew enough history without ever having studied it formally, except at school, um, to realise that the historical enterprise is in essence different from what much that lawyers do when they think about principles, how to shape a case, and so forth. Historians are tied to the best sources uh, for examining a contemporary event of a particular time. And in deep historical study, you must have a backing of mainly written literature, interviews maybe in the modern period, um, but always, what what is the evidence that tells how it appeared to be to people at the time? And lawyers, of course, aren't often concerned with that. They want a solution for their clients' problems. Um, if they're dealing with it, having to deal with it from a an historical perspective, perhaps, in the common law system, because there's case law there that needs to be put in its own surroundings and not simply judged as though all the concepts were the same as they're learning today. And there are many examples of that being that sort of difference arising. Um, lawyers are pursuing different paths for different purposes. Nevertheless, the feeling that it's only proper that they should have, a, have an historical appreciation of their own system at the same time, and that it might well lead them to doubt the certainties of what they are told is a legal principle, uh, are always there, and our aim is to provide some sort of relatively modest teaching book explaining the whole to them, uh, which could be used to put courses on modern legal history into law faculties in particular, but not necessarily restricted to that, of course. And we're delighted when we hear that his historians are themselves introducing sections on the law and its impact into many of their courses. So that's the general background of the book. Poor Geoffrey Clark died of uh, cancer within four years of uh, undertaking a contract for the book with penguins um, and that distorted the whole working program naturally. He'd written bits and pieces. I decided I was probably best able to promote a coherent book with a certain style to it if I did the whole of it myself by myself working from, from Jeffrey's drafts when they were available 
but thoroughly reworking them to fit with what he hadn't done and what I thought was the, the truly significant historical uh, tale to be told on a particular subject. So it was a big piece of work and uh, it took me 20 years um, of just picking up a topic and trying to finish that and get on to the next one. Penguins narrowed their focus on new ideas in that 20 years and weren't interested in publishing it. Uh, in the end, my first publishers, no, not my first publishers, uh, the publishers of my other big book on intellectual property, Sweet and Maxwell, undertook to, to put it out and it came out in 1989. Uh, I can't say that Apart from one editor, Sweden and Maxwell were much enamoured of the book. I don't think they sold many copies. They certainly had no plan for a second edition. And so there it sat. It uh, came into to the expected criticism from the left, who thought it was far too much, far too complementary to the English legal system and should have been all about its failings, its past prejudices, the narrow education of its judges, and so on and on. I prefer to take um, a more descriptive attitude, trying to get at evidence. And uh, that shows up throughout the book. I mean, there were points where uh, what were becoming hot topics in legal studies, such as um, the relation of husband and wife, uh, the impact of uh, that sort of family law on children, uh, where many of the modern discussions of where society was turning in, in its familial relations, and that was very dominant around 1970 make their due appearance in this history. So such things certainly deserved a place. Uh, One of the um, an interesting point that was made, I thought, by Professor David Sugarman and also Professors Dezenas and Warrington was that you, you were dismissive of Hayes' theory of criminal justice Yes. Um, depending upon a mixture of terror and gratitude. In the 18th century in particular. That's correct. And um, I wondered whether you felt, Professor Cornish, that perhaps the revolutionary events in the United States and France in any way influenced the uh, criminal justice system in the UK? Well, I think it's the major influence of France uh, was on the, the formation of uh, essentially po police in our modern sense, uh, but at the, the top end of interference with people of some standing, knowing where they were related to royal prerogatives and so forth, was in question. And one of the things about all these theories about just how unjust the criminal system was uh, is that there was no established police in our modern sense that starts only with the 
Metropolitan Police Act in 1829, uh, at least as a, a, the beginnings of national spread of such a system. It was that those who ran localities, some of them kindly, uh, some of them just trying to keep order, some of them with a thorough distaste for the poachers and the poaching classes and all related to them, uh, were therefore involved in running this system. And naturally, they took different attitudes to their, their role. It's terribly easy to pick up the cases of bullying and, and dis, just plain social dislike in all, in all this. But that's what the, the Hague thesis is built upon. There's been a contrary school of writing led by Professor John Langbein of uh, various U United States universities, a uh, very formidable scholar, um, who takes a more adaptive view, if you like, of this system. That was, it was made to work for the cases which today we have no difficulty in justifying theft, a certain amount of personal violence, but not a great deal. And he builds up this picture from laboriously tracing through caseloads in, in, case in courts that were functioning quite substantially in, in all this, not just um, the Central Criminal Court as it became, although uh, it has its own records, uh, but cases in the countryside around London in particular. And there was quite an influence in that work of people trained as anthropologists who thought you needed to get into a whole community as best you can, and therefore the criminal law records were one way of very importantly establishing um, what, what was going on at grassroots. And that produces more modified theories. I chose to side with them. Another reviewer, that was Professor Hackney, made an amusing comment he, uh, saying that religion gets very little attention in the book and he muses that this may have been because we'd spent so long at London School of Economics and he wondered whether the spell at Cambridge would restore the balance. Well, you must understand in relation to that remark that we were fellow students of modern college Oxford <laughs> between 1960 and 1962. So it's that it's written with a certain amused smile on Jeffrey's <laughs> face. Um, but it makes a very definite point, no question, the role of religion as such, and there's so much historical writing about this, that somehow I certainly underplayed it. There were the strange church courts which turned over to be the uh, administrators of personality in wills and whatever family relationship could be undone under the law before 1857, which introduced judicial divorce, um, where church courts were directly involved, and of course there was church business as well, and highly inflammatory some of that was by the mid-19th century, with Newman, Newman in there exciting Oxford to all sorts of uh, 
positions that took a great deal of time to sort out. So in the later Oxford history on this period, which uh, six of us wrote together, and we'll come to that, um, we made a definite effort to put in two things which were not covered in law and society. One was a more distinct description of religious morals uh, as reflected through ecclesiastical law and to some extent through other legal legal problems um, because it was such a part of society. Um, and that is something which has faded since and continues to fade. Nevertheless, it is important. And the other thing we put in was military law, which we Jeffrey didn't comment on that, but it should also have been part of his comment, though not necessarily linking it to the LSE. Huh. Yeah. Well, uh, Professor Cornish, that brings us to the works which arguably are you are most famous for, and for which you've been described by Professor Bentley in the preface to your Feshgrift, which was written to celebrate your retirement from the Herschel Smith yeah. chair here as the father of intellectual property teaching and scholarship in the UK. And of course, I'm talking here about your famous intellectual property, patents, copyright, trademarks and allied rights, first published in 1981, successive iterations, so that we are now currently in the eighth edition, published in 2013. So you kindly told us in a previous interview how you were urged by Professor Khan Freund to teach courses on intellectual property mm -hmm. while you're still at the LSE. Mm -hmm. um, this was in the late 60s, but your first book came out about a decade and a half later, and I wondered if you could describe for us the main factors in driving you to compile this very important work. What was lacking in any British literature about intellectual property in the 1960s was any one book that could be sensibly considered to contain all that you can call intellectual property. It has major subdivisions and it was important to put them into the title. There was a danger otherwise that what was called industrial property, very often patents, trade secrets and so forth uh, would would be taken by many lawyers in those days as the law of factories and their building industrial property uh, so we had to get rid of that that sort of mis misapprehension that's one way of illustrating that the, the field as a whole uh, was very much the world of specialists doing a job to get these rights for clients or fighting off people who were asserting them against their, their, their clients. Um, because intellectual property is funny stuff. The essential characteristic that binds um, the various bits of it, patents, copyright, trademarks, trade secrets, plant variety rights, and so forth. There's quite a long list now. 
The central characteristic is that the law gives those who have generated or adopted particular pieces of information the right to stop others, particularly their competitors in trade, from adopting that information as though it were their own. But even if they acknowledged that they were copying it from somewhere else, the right still applied against them to some degree, and it varies from the different types, through the different types. Um, it's not a law which imposes responsibilities on those who have the information to start with. You can have a, you can have a trademark um, which is used on goods and there's something in it uh, which suggests that um, it contains a particular ingredient when it doesn't. It's not chocolate. It's some sort of substitute for chocolate. But chocolate is there in the trademark. Uh, so it's not a law which imposes obligations on people have the, who have the information in the first place. There have been suggestions because it's a subject that is always controversial and therefore into um, financially and so forth very significant to industries. Um, there have been suggestions that it should also become a responsibility package. And from time to time, the European Union, which has got more and more involved in this field, um, likes to start thinking about how it should draw lines so as to make people, even the possessors of intellectual property behave more responsibly. But it doesn't happen very much. So what, what to say more about this? It, it took as long as that to write because I needed to get a sabbatical for a year in which I didn't do anything else. It was at that stage I was able to draw upon my link with the largest academic organisation in that field by far. This is the Max Planck Institute in Munich for what was essentially intellectual property then, and it's not greatly changed since, though its title is now a Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Competition, which certainly brings a link with competition law in the sense of uh, unfair trading practices. Uh, so I didn't get that chance to go to the Max Planck Institute until 1978-79. We took our family then first to Australia and then to Munich. And uh, very, very beneficial that was. And I always kept my connection with the Max Planck Institute and went to, went to many of their meetings. And eventually I also became a, an external academic researcher there. I do, I'll say it myself, a considerable honour for a foreigner. Yes, absolutely. So, um, out of that came the book. In Britain, as I've already just remarked in, in passing, it was 
more sweeping in its scope than anything that there was on the bookshelves at that stage, because that consisted of very large tomes on the different subjects, patents, registered designs, uh, copyright, trademarks, etc. Uh, all written for the specialist practitioners in this little known field. And uh, the aim was to provide teaching material in law schools. And there is no doubt that this book, though the publishers didn't think they'd sell a copy, uh, did catch on reasonably quickly. Within 10 years, there were many courses in British universities in this field. Um, and that was very gratifying, really was. Other books began to appear that had a certain tendency to go around exactly the same course, of course. Um, and then there's now a huge literature of that type from which you can teach, along with an increasingly hectoring and uh, critical attitude to the very idea that for an invention, say, you can get an exclusive right to exploit in industrial terms for a term that's an, a maximum now of 20 years from the moment you file your application. Um, it's a system as a whole which is enormously complicated the factor to stress, I think, this afternoon is that all these rights were regarded as part of the economic policy of governments of states. So the intellectual property law is confined geographically to the particular state's uh, borders. That has been added to in complication since from yeah, in 19, the 1970s, the European Union and certain states associated with it, but not yet part of it, including the United Kingdom, uh, were each had their own national law. And if, as often happened, an invention, say, was being used by someone else, uh, in a variety of countries around the world, not just Europe, though Europe was often an, an entity in this, this game. Uh, you had to sue then in each country where infringement of the right was taking place. And therefore, in any planning to reform the law, change it, a first question would be, which of the major industrial uh, countries have effectively the same law as ours. And of course, the British have passed intellectual properties on to all their colonies. So that was quite a starting point in these international discussions. But wider than that, um, there were all sorts of links between countries because the international aspect is in reality so very important to leading traders not businesses just starting up, though they will hope to go down that track if they can keep the material coming in. And that's the life of publishers, for instance.
yes. and their copyrights. But uh, so it builds up private private law systems in individual countries are what it's made up of. But there's a great deal more and more of uh, interlinking and harmonization. And the, the Americans have, of course, been one of the great promoters of this, but their law tends to be country-specific for all sorts of historical reasons. And uh, in the 1980s, when they were thought they were losing badly in the battle for overseas revenues against the Japanese, for instance, uh, they became determined to push developing countries in particular, countries that the Americans could see in 10 years' time would be essentially developed when it came to industrial production, maybe specific fields, but far ahead of what they were in the 1970s, uh, would, be, would need to be brought into a, a working complex not at the level of whose right were you, which right were you enforcing, but as an agreement over and above that. And the Americans leading uh, European industry and the Japanese managed to establish when the general agreement on tariffs and trades, trade um, was revised in the early 1990s. Uh, the measure that became the World Trade Organization and of the various sub-agreements which the WTO then ran, supervised. Uh, the Agreement on Trade-Related Intellectual Property, known as TRIPS, TRIPS. TRIPS which generally required all members of the World Trade organization, and that's most countries in the world, 160 or something, to adopt intellectual property laws for their own territories, which had high standards that you found in the industrialized countries, not some vague mention in very general terms of what might be possible to never enforced, but, but something much more like uh, what the American pharmaceutical and uh, entertainment industries were demanding around the world because they said they were losing huge amounts of revenue coming into them. And uh, that represented in many ways the high point of intellectual property worship, which is found particularly strongly in American industries because they have so much to gain from it. I can only make it work. And ever since, that was 20 years ago, ever since the various countries involved from their highly different economic positions have been fighting over what TRIPS really requires and how, it how much it changes things and what its future should be. Academics are particularly interested in this and have all sorts of theories. The movement at the moment, nevertheless, seems to be backward from, from trips 
because uh, how would one put it? TRIPS is an international agreement. It therefore moves very slowly in any direction because all countries, currently members, have to agree to it and can put in a developing country perspective by joint action and so forth. Um, so people now are now beginning to doubt whether TRIPS is the way forward. And the Americans don't waste time on this sort of thing. They're constantly entering bilateral or small range international agreements with the territories they go around um, pointing out the sins uh, that are taking place there despite all this <laughs> stuff and um, are much much more concerned to get these the, these new new approaches in smaller agreements into position and functioning and then use them as an example of what should happen elsewhere. Mm. So all this is big business, yes. I can tell you, and it leads on to many different perspectives about where all this wondrous world should go. Exciting time, yeah. not altogether optimistic, whatever some Americans may tell you about it being the, the essence of capitalism. Well, um, actually, Professor Cornish, one of the uh, reviewers mentions that uh, you were critical, speaking of the Americans, of mm -hmm. the US rule that patents are permissible for computer programs that produce informational results mm -hmm. and don't involve technical means. And similarly, in biotechnology, the US Patent Office accepts patents that wouldn't pass muster in the European Patents Office. Is this still the case? Yes. Uh, right. Yes. This is a, a reflection of the great American push to, to, to ensure that everything you could conceive of as intellectual property should be protected within the patent system, the copyright system, the trademark system. Um, and Europe is much choosier about this. For instance, the copyright system, first of all, protects the worth, the works of authors, painters, composers, classical forms of art expression. Laxer countries, which typically are from the common law tradition, are not so bothered by that. They don't, for instance, call for an intellectual contribution by the author for there to be copyright. Something like so that there has been writing and it's not copied from somewhere else. And it's, in some sense, substantial enough to protect. So there is this great division between the common law and the civil law attitudes uh, to copyright, and it reflects from the latter perspective, a deep trust and belief in artistic creation as a, a high human endeavor and something we must protect from greedier people who would like it to, to turn only to protection for pop tunes. Yes. So that is going on all, 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 all the time 
one stream within it are those lawyers in particular who argue that it shouldn't any longer be a law for authors because in real life of course the authors then assign their rights to management societies and so forth to get the revenue in um, and that the author should be dropped out of the picture that will be fought to the death by Germany and France leading most continental countries in the same tradition whether it's as strong as it was when I started in this game 50 years ago is hard to say, but I would say it's a bit less uh, overblown than it was from this perspective because, in fact, so much of what is copyright is pretty low-grade stuff. Yes. It's what you can make money out of. Yes. Eurovision. So. <laughs> Oh. Uh, well, etc. Um, another contentious point that is raised by Professor Ankelmeyer, who reviewed your yes, yes. Uh, fifth edition, is he says he comments on the relationship between the internet and copyright, and quoting you, he says it's the most inflamed issue in current intellectual property, and I wondered whether the Google case involving the right to be forgotten in the ECJ ruling. Uh, is an example, a good example of the different attitudes um, between the continent and the US cultures. It is, but I don't think it has directly to do with intellectual property. Uh, it is, has to do with rights of privacy in their contest with the right of free expression. So it's not giving a property right to someone who's written a book uh, so that it can be exploited in the market. Right. It is there, and it's been there in national laws long before the EU, to allow people to say, you're telling the world that I had convictions 15 years ago, they're exhausted, um, they're of no significance, I should have a right to have them removed from any public directory. And in the EU case you're talking about concerning Google Spain, um, that's what the Court of Justice said the law was. But it's talking in terms of a right of privacy um, for the person about whom the information is being given, not about an author, for instance, for commercial reasons. And so it, you could call, certainly call it information law, and some people are beginning to do that because information is used in ways in law that um, are very different from just the intellectual property. But people might be most interested on the whole in the intellectual property because they might make money out of it. Well, that actually is a very interesting point you make, Professor Pornish, because in the preface to your intellectual property, mm -hmm. you do mention that the ECJ has issued many rulings on copyright and related rights, which in which you detect a what you call superficial reliance on human rights. And this was also mentioned by Professor McQueen yes. in review. Um, mm -hmm. wh why do you think there's so much reliance on human rights rather than patent issues? Is, is, are they saying these are not patent issues? Yes, they are rights which give people who object to their name being placed on a public record um, 
to have it removed. Nothing more, if you like, but the crucial point to them. Um, and you that, say... So it's, it's not intellectual property. It's not giving them yes. something they can then go out yes. and commercialise. Yes. If they don't want the information out, then they want the opposite. They want it removed. Right. And think of European history over the last century and all the twists it, it got itself into. It's not surprising that a right of privacy is valued to a very considerable extent in countries like Germany, Stasi, yeah. um, and, and so on, in ways that Americans wouldn't, wouldn't count because they think anybody can get up and shout about anything and it's all good. Yes. Yes. And that it'll be censorship if somebody removes their murder conviction from their file. <laughs> Etc. So it's a, it's an aspect of the same sort of attitude to, to knowledge. The European there must must be limits, but they maybe must be the right limits. What can be said about Europe? The American of course you can publish anything about people unless you offend the law. There is the law of defamation, so don't tell lies, whether you, whether you know they're lies or not, but um, nothing further. Mm. Nothing if, you, if the, the person is giving up the truth. Um, another interesting point that you made in the preface to intellectual property is um, that the EU is now the driving force for intellectual property rights in Europe. Apropos patents, uh, you mentioned that Spain has instituted proceedings to test the competence of the Council and the Parliament to enact regulations yes. that underpin that the That case has just been decided. I, I the Spanish did not win. I won't begin to describe to you the complications that were written into this legislation to satisfy certain points of view. Uh, the most important of which was that the European Court of Justice, being a very general court, does not have specialists in it who could handle the technical side necessarily of uh, patent law. Um, and these are mostly patent lawyers objecting. And a very tricky way was found by the European Commission's presidents, the Poles, of putting, as is hoped by those people, an embargo on cases on positive patent law. Is this, is this an invention really an invention or was the idea obvious, for instance, to the European Court of Justice? In my view, it hangs most peculiarly from the lips of the British involved in this campaign since our cases at home go to the Supreme Court, which couldn't be more general if it tried. <laughs> and we have 12 judges or whatever it is there who can cover anything that's put before them. But of course, we assume that they're all so brilliant that it's not a problem. <laughs> not necessarily a view shared by those people of the European Court of Justice. <laughs> well. Professor Cornish, on the subject of court rulings, you, you also make a, what I thought was a very interesting point, again in your preface, 
slightly cryptic comment, we say that there's evidence of sleight of hand in a measure designed to impose major limitations upon references to the ECJ yes. concerning the interpretation of substantive patent law. Oh, I would stick general. by. I would stick by sleight of hand. It's an extremely tricky piece of drafting, which the Commission, the European Commission, and and others hope will achieve their objective. But it will, in the end of the day, depend on what the Court of Justice says about this. A um, Spanish have had a, a, a go and getting them to say this, this legislation makes no sense whatsoever. As I said earlier, I won't go into technical reasons of why this argument can be made. Uh, the proposed European Community Patent has been the subject of a treaty never implemented since 1975. And European politicians, European officers are heartily sick of the whole row about what it should say. And that's why it's getting through to the stage of becoming legislation that is governing this new kind of patent, one which will cover the whole of the geographic territories of the member states. And with some add-ons by bilateral treaty, the um, European Economic Agreement as well. So it's a big deal. Come, come, come back to IP people in five years' time and they'll tell you whether it's just a hopeless mess or some, something which can really be made to work. Yes. Well, um, I suppose there's always this problem of fragmentation and one of the reviewers, Mr Schilling, actually reviewed two of your editions. That's very nice of him. He's a former pupil of mine. Go on. He remarks on the danger of the subject being in the hands of experts who only know about single segments. Um, And this fragmentation has been alluded to by one of our English scholars, Professor Koskinyemi. In relation to international law. In relation to international law. But I suppose... Basic Ornish that it's with the technical complexity in, in IPR, it's inevitable. It's not just that, it's the way in which those who know, as, as the review suggests, those who know about the law and its practical enforcement tend to become specialists within. They may be film lawyers, they may be um, biotechnical lawyers, uh, they may be geneticists, uh, they may just deal with trademarks, which is relatively straightforward. Um, but probably their practice uh, will be very often restricted. And these days you have firms with intellectual firms of solicitors with intellectual property departments in which you will have specialists in each of these sub-disciplines. So in a way, it's more integrated than it was, and it was one of the objects of my book to make people see that a an IP problem may be about a patent, a trademark, 
a um, copyright on some literature and so on and on, so that you have in the end to be reasonably adept at spotting which rights are, relate to a particular case. Yes, very interesting. <laughs> so in a way it's, it's, it's integrating more than the old system where people were absolute specialists in one or other aspect and probably edited the book on that subject. In your previous interview, you gave a very interesting account of your chairmanship of NAPAG. Oh, yes. And all the wrangling between various institutions, Ray Technology Transfer. Mm. Has that, to some extent, been resolved now by EU legislation? Um, not, not really, I think. There are highly sensitive points about ownership of intellectual property involved when, when academic institutions are involved. In German patent law, there is a right of the actual inventor, however much he owes all his duties to his employer. There's a right to a flow of revenue that comes from using his idea when it's been patented. And this is a big part of German industry's interest in the patent system and avoiding such cases. They arise in this country as well. Um, millions may be involved. One of the things that I have done for Cambridge University was to chair the committee which finally drew up a, a policy on the ownership of intellectual property rights within the university. And uh, I think a little led by me, but with the right kind of other academics sitting on the committee, we eventually concluded that this question of ownership um, should be liberal in the sense that so far as it's practical and possible, the actual inventor, the actual author, should be the person who first gets the rights and they can then deal with them, including handing them over to the technology transfer office of the university. Now, that's not a view that has been adopted by most vice chancellors who are able to lead their academic councils in, into a solution to this. Their first aim was to get all the rights for the university on the basis that that's probably what the government would like them to do. Um, and there's every variety of that around institutions in this country. The Germans, of course, will have produced um, model policies which are much more centrist. But it's taken them quite a long time to get there because German professors individually are powerful people still. Um, so the solution to this won't be high on the EU's agenda. I can see it's just a minefield. Of problems. Right. So, Professor Cornish, in an area which is so fast moving mm -hmm. and where you've updated your book every two or three years, yeah. um, uh, looking into the future, what do you see as the main trends and areas opening up? 
well, there will be more regulation in the interests of copyright owners, because of course it has been terribly difficult then in many situations for them to adapt to digital spread of materials where the intermediate seller with a piece of hardware isn't there any longer for the ways in which you can use this material. So that's going to be a very big copyright question. The regulation of copyright societies who collect revenue for authors because individuals collecting the revenue for their song or whatever it is would be much too diffuse and wouldn't, wouldn't work. And that's boiling up again, mainly at the European level. In, as far as patents are concerned, uh, there has always been a problem about over, over elaborate, over difficult approaches to subject matter. And as it gets bigger and bigger, a field in genetics or biotechnology more generally, um, this is only increasing. Not much, I think, can be done about it. Um, and that is a world where in 1970, IBM said, we don't need intellectual property rights, i.e. we are so much the leader of this whole field that we'll always be ahead and we can keep it secret. Um, lots of exploitation. Contracts given to people who buy their software um, were couched in exactly those terms. Everything was secret. So then there was a rebellion against that, and we have um, free copyright licenses and so forth, which is a very interesting new development. Uh, more generally, it is proving terribly difficult um, to draw a line between abstract information about what biotechnology achieves in a scientific sense, what you can pull apart and what you can put together again, and all those techniques. And the stage, reaching the stage where the consequences of what you do has an external use. So you find a, a, a bit of a chromosome or something uh, where you can predict for great cases breast cancer raising all sorts of problems um, about practicability of using that knowledge and uh, all the associated um, moral problems that some people think are should keep the patent system out of, out of that yeah, the whole area of human biology but that's a more intermediate position that's being taken bit by bit around the world, very slowly because except for a few lucky cases, there's not much money yet in microbi microbiological exploitation. Right. Unlike, of course, stuff on the internet. Yeah. Which is there and being stolen. <laughs> well, that brings us to the last book today, Professor Cornish, which is your monumental Oxford history, yes. the laws of England, 1820 to 1914. And you mentioned in your previous interview that you'd given an undertaking to Professor Baker 
to contribute to his Oxford history when you first arrived in Cambridge in 1990. Mm -hmm. It was published in 2010, so the implication is that it's been 20 years in the making. And I wonder if you could tell, tell us something about how you went about organising this huge project, because it strikes me as much as writing and researching a managerial project as well. And I'd be yes. very interested to know how you, how you selected your contributors. Um, well, of course, it was a matter of give and take. And one of the factors in that give and take was how much would anybody who became an author lose chances to write lesser stuff for the what was the research exercise in the early days and has since become a framework. Um, and I lost one very good contributor. Through that. But beyond that, it was a matter of personal appreciation of who had emerged as the leading modern legal historians. And there, thereby hangs a, a, a tale of a kind about my first Roaring Society book. Uh, there was so much that could have gone, gone into that and didn't. Hackney pointed out religion quite right. Um, although the book sold very few copies in the early years because nobody had courses on, on the subject and only gradually at the teaching level did it spread. Um, I've been able to do that at the LSE whilst I was still there and when I came to Cambridge tried to do, we, we tried to do the same thing. But research, on the other hand, uh, in, in involving the modern history of a legal subject, grew like crazy, just like with intellectual property, but only on the research side. So these pe people, most of them trained as historians as well as lawyers, uh, who were open to invitations to join in a big project like that. And it couldn't have been done without my good collaborators, uh, Stuart Anderson from Otago, Michael Lobham from the LSE, uh, Ray Cox, was at Keel, uh, Patrick Polden, a great expert on the legal system and the court system, and Keith Smith, on the criminal law in particular, but did other bits of the book as well. <coughs> so together we pushed each other into a sort of position and we held regular meetings and discussed what can be discussed in those sort of circumstances, but essentially it was left for each person to write his own chapter. I had an oversight and I had to do a bit of pushing to get people into roughly the same sort of style but not seriously as far as starting points are concerned. These were all his people who wanted the history to be expressed and stated, not people who wanted to use it as a tool for political criticism. The class structure and so forth determined everything. Didn't tell you much. Um, so we were thinking along, we knew we would all think along doing 
the same sorts of line because we've already all written history of this kind in a period really of 20 years. Ray Cox had, had some important stuff about the bar that was earlier. And I, of course, had my, my book. But this was a phenomenon of the 1990s in the first decade of this century. And it, it goes on at a pace. John Baker, amongst his many, many contributions to the whole of English legal history, started, or not quite started, but promoted the biennial legal history conference, British legal history conference. And the number of people coming and wanting to present papers at it now are such that there have to be three streams over the large part of three or four days to fit everybody in. Well, one of the reviews, as I recall, commented on just how little mismatch there was in interpretation given such a, a large number of contributors. How consistent the... Well, I would claim that that was kind of the initiatory discussion I had with everybody brought them together and it was clear that we just did strip and dot in all sorts of ways the same sorts of judgments about not being too typical uh, too not being too um, obsessed by a position trying to be straight straightforward and allowing other people to decide um, what to make of the material. Yes. So to take an example, which I think is uh, provided by one of the least fair of the critics um, of the first book, how do you present trade union law? There had been fine writing with much research behind it by Sidney and Beatrice Webb and those who followed from him like the Hammonds, from them like the Hammonds, uh, which was judgmental at a time when they were trying to make a case for trade unions out of their, the history of movements and tried to do so. But the first thing that the modern historians pointed out about that was the lack of success for so long. And to be told that I was uh, repeatedly disdainful of trade unions as a whole, when I had been trying to write this long, hard history, ending up with the Taffail case against the unions striking, and then the Liberals of 1906's Trade Union Act um, as their triumph, and then what followed from that. It's, just has to be dismissed as rubbish. Yes. Well, I imagine, Professor Cornish, that you brought to bear on this work your considerable experience in writing the Law and Society and also yes. your intellectual property. Um, because even though the time span, I think it's 90 years, yeah. it was, of course, hugely um, eventful in terms of political and social development. Yeah. Um, and you had all this experience from these previous books that could feed into this project. Well, of course it does. It does help on decisions, first decisions over such things as 
how much general social history do I put in? How, how, how far to pick out the political figures who dominate discussion for a while and then disappear off and do something else? Was it the great names or was it people with obsessions who've got parliamentary seats or what was it? Some of that has to go in, but you have to be circumspect or you will have 10 volumes, not three. Yes. Well, if I can just uh, ask a few specific questions. Yeah. In the manifest in volume 11, you make the point, which I found very interesting, that English law took very little notice of developments to the common law by colonial regimes and that this tendency increased as the 19th century wore on. I wondered why this was. Well, first of all, because the societies that Britain was establishing around the world so that it could boast that it owned a quarter, owned a quarter of the people in a quarter of the territory mm. by the time the empire was finished. These were primitive societies, much preoccupied with keeping enough stability from violence to dealing with native populations as they saw fit. Um, for their little systems not to amount to much. And there's whatever I might have said about it in the introduction, um, there's, there's, there's plenty of evidence that um, the people who were sent out as judges who weren't fools, were very reliant on what their British legal sources told them. Uh, that's the f first authority they would turn to. They probably didn't have many precedents on many subjects of their own. Add to that a somewhat disdainful, disdainful attitude in the India office and in uh, the colonial office to any attempt to rise above this and become independent-minded. That's, that's mo how they mostly behaved. There were wars. There was a judge in my state of South Australia who proclaimed that none of the other judge judges had been properly appointed by the Queen, so he was the only judge entitled to rule on precedence, but more importantly, on statutes passed by the local legislature as they began to acquire some legislative power. Um, and he would hold acts of parliament to be, uh, in, in these dependent colonies, to be invalid. He did it in relation to the famous torrent system or the title of lands. Um, and after that, steps had to be taken. A big step was something called the Colonial Laws Validity Act of 1865, in which effectively the colonial office got power to overrule statutes which were thought to be completely beyond uh, management. Uh, not used very much, but that was that was the way of getting rid of the judge of South Australia. <laughs> well, another point that you made in your uh, manifest was the legal fiction or pretense and you implied that this development was a 19th century phenomenon. And I, I wondered if you could... I don't think I meant to. 
Legal legal fiction is a very large part of the development of the whole of the common law. X would be treated as Y because X gave a right. No, I'm sorry, Y gave a right and X mm. did not. Um, and if anything, that was replaced by statutes which said plainly what the law was in relation to X without having to refer to Y and pretend that Y was X as well. Understand. It's a, it, it's a type of procedure for legal change in any system that is insisting that the judges know the law and they don't make any of it up. Um, so you so you'll answer it by creating a fiction. But on the whole, that's that's gone from modern practice once you get these statutes with which interminably defined concepts for themselves. That's 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 a, an aspect of nineteenth century um, legal development, certainly. And Ray Cox has a lot to say about, say about it in the Oxford History, Vol. Three. Right. I'm sorry, Vol. Thirteen. Right. Right. Um, just as a, a final question about this work, much of what you described the legal evolution was driven, obviously, by these massive social changes in nineteenth-century England, industrialization. Um, and I wondered whether you think that eventually a similar kind of legal revamping will be necessary uh, as we become increasingly immersed in the sort of pre to post digital age, which has caused so much disruption to social and moral and political values. Well, that's a very difficult generalisation, isn't it? Because you have to take each case and say, give it a quantity. Was this really big change or not? In many ways, of course, life is just becoming more and more complicated. Um, as more and more bodies get legislative power to put their stamp on something, and in places like the Commission of the European Communities, your whole future depends on your getting your piece of legislation through. And that'll be a triumph for the state you come from. And uh, all sorts of nastinesses go on. Um, but in many ways, the law is becoming so complicated already. A companies act with 700 sections. Just, just the police companies, roughly speaking, and get them properly registered in a stupid company's office. I can tell you, don't record what you've just told them. You have to make them up and tell them 20 times, etc. Um, much of the driving force of new law that's really important is now uh, European community law and Brussels, no question. Yeah. Uh, and it results from a process of infusion together of solutions from 28 member states already. By the time Turkey and Georgia have joined, 
who knows. So I don't have any straightforward answer to your, to your question. Um, I don't think there will be big uh, efforts to produce uh, law at its most general level in a more coherent form, such as happened um, on the continent with things like the Prussian Code of 1796, or in the common law with all the efforts to put it into a statutory form, the work of the criminal law commissioners, who in two, two, two goes operated from 1834 to um, 1850. That's an awful lot of legislative planning especially as the results were not great. <laughs> so. Well, Professor Cornish, before we conclude, I wonder if you could tell us something about your contribution to the law of restitution. Yes, I'd be glad to, though it hasn't been great in any way. Um, but I did teach it as a subject at the LSE from... 1964, I think it was, until I, until I left in 1990, 1980, I'm getting tired. Um, would, would you like a glass of water? No, I'm sorry. Um, it was not recognised, the idea of restitution, otherwise known as the entitlement to um, recompense for an unjust enrichment that you have given someone else. As one of those basic classifications in legal, legal systems, classifications I mean like tort, contract, public law, uh, public law and, and so forth. Until, in a common law system, the American, a restatement of the law of restitution appeared in 1937, written by two leading scholars, one of whom was a common lawyer and the other of whom was an equity master. Um, and that attempt to do it was very much divided along the lines of these legal sources because in America, in some states, they had a very strong division with them still, just like the state in New South Wales, you understand. <laughs> um, after the war, one of the brightest young men coming out of Oxford, who then immediately became a, a tutor there, was Robert Goff. And he decided to write the English law of restitution when no one else had done it in that form. So it is a new book as well, sort of on the same lines as the kind of work I was doing in other subjects. And I was lucky enough to be asked at the LSE very early on uh, to teach it with him because he was a big practice at the bar moment. And that was a fascinating experience for me. His book, The Law of Restitution, written with Professor Gareth Jones of Cambridge, uh, appeared in 1965. 
and I saw the original proofs of it, it seemed that most of the book was actually written on the proofs. And I believe they didn't get much by way of royalties on the first, first edition because there was a rule in Sweden Maxwell practice that if you went over 10% of corrections, you started paying for them out of your royalties. Um, so that's how they proceeded, both very busy men. And it was a pleasure to teach alongside Robert for a few years, and then he had to give up, and the other teachers at the LSE were glad to join in because this was becoming yet another new subject that students wanted to come, come and study. Again, because it was new, it was met with considerable hostility from judges who didn't know what it was, and from lawyers who even less knew what it was. Um, and one mark of that was that it didn't go through a second edition, despite all that was happening uh, mm. for 15 years. Uh, now it's done every five years or so, of course. So, uh, I wrote case notes on various things that came through, even in that field. But really, it was a one-day-a-week job for me. I got the notes out the night before, went through them, and the classes were very lively and conducted as seminars, uh, and that was great. And the famous Professor Peter Burks started teaching it, because the London LLM could have teaching of the same subject in different colleges. From the late 60s as well, of course, was adding his particular passionate concern for this subject, which he took unto himself. And that was very influential as well. Uh, may I just mention the one serious bit of writing that I did do in restitution, which was to give the first Aslan Shah lecture in the University of Malaya um, in Kuala Lumpur, because I was out there as an external examiner. Its title has become the Raja Aslan Shah Lecture in Law. And it's been given since by all sorts of high legal personalities, many of them members of the House of Lords or now the Supreme Court, uh, but not entirely from Britain. And so it, it really ranks. Um, my contribution to it was uh, to take up a sort of private public law aspect of restitution, which was to ask the question, if um, a, a government or other public authority demands money from a, an individual, and the individual gives into that demand and pays the money, but it turns out afterwards that the authority had no legal power given it by statute to extract the money in the first place, did they have to pay it back? This was rising in the 80s in case law in all sorts of places, but not least in local government in England. It became a real problem. Uh, there were old precedents which said everybody's expected to know the law, so if you make a payment 
you must be taken to have known what the law was, and you can't get it back for that reason. Pretty sweeping. Uh, the approach I took was that a mistake of law should be treated in the same way as a mistake of fact, such as, oh, I paid a second time and I didn't mean to. Um, in other words, that there would be an, uh, an entitlement against public authorities who made demands in the same way as for mistake of facts. And in doing that, I was being tougher on local authorities than even Peter Burks was prepared to be. He thought there should be, judges should have a discretionary power to say whether it would be too tough on the local authority if it had to pay the money back. To which my answer was, well, they can always pass a new statute, they've got taxing authorities, or they can get new, new statutes out of government departments. And Peter graciously agreed that that was the better approach in a private law subject. So we had done this writing, and not long after a local authority gets into trouble in England, the case goes to the House of Lords, who is sitting there by that time? But uh, Lord Goff of Cheveley, our old friend, um, and he uses the opportunity to install this kind of solution in the common law, changing it. So it was all very gratifying. Very. What case was that, Professor Porch? I can't Do remember you? without looking it up. I'll try and look it up. Would you? Yes, yes it'll be under yeah, mistake, mistake of law. Right. Very interesting indeed. Uh, Very yeah. gratifying. Yes, there may have been more than one case. There's another reason why I hesitated. Would be in, the, in the 80s. No, in the 90s. In the 90s. Early 90s. Early 90s. Thank and you. if you have any difficulty, I'll, I'll look it up in Thank you. the restitution book. So. Well, Professor Cornish, all that remains is for me to thank you yet again for another outstanding interview which I'm extremely grateful. I know that it's going to be of great interest to our readers uh, along with your second and your first interview and I can only reiterate my thanks again. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.